0: Welcome to the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, the home of CEOs and investors in the minerals and royalties space. Disclaimer. The content provided in this podcast episode is meant purely for educational purposes only and reflects the personal opinions of Beth Good. Resource Royalty encourages you to seek professional financial counsel for personalized investment advice and to consult your CPA and attorney for all tax and legal matters. It's important to note that all investments, including mineral rights securities, involve risk. Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Beth Good, CEO of Resource Royalty. A 1031 exchange-focused minerals aggregator, who's primarily active in the Anadarko Basin. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Beth had to say. Beth, good morning, and welcome onto the podcast. Looking forward to, to jumping in here. Y'all are one of the 1031 minerals players in the market, so I'm excited to break that down in a little more detail. Y'all's track record, where you focus, etc. Uh, but before we do that, let's jump into your background so everyone has some context. I know you've been with resource royalty for a good stretch of time. So curious to hear that journey, but where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school and how'd you get an all guests? Let's start there.
1: Okay. And, And journey's the correct word. So I'm actually a native Dallasite, second generation, and then traveled about nine miles down the road and attended Southern Methodist University, third generation, SMU, and graduated from there and started my career in public accounting. I'll date myself by letting everyone know that that at the time, there were eight big firms instead of four. So I started my career with what was then Pete Marwick Mitchell, spent five years in the auditing department, had my first daughter, thought I'll never go back. And lo and behold, two years later, a friend that was a partner called and said, hey, we're bringing back some people like you to work a couple of months a year that have kids. And we recognize, you know, the challenges that that presents. So I did that for another five years.
0: Now, were you industry agnostic at this point? Or yes. did you have? Okay. So you and, hadn't gotten into oil and gas yet.
1: had not no and you know one of the things that I look back on that experience now and and didn't appreciate at the time is that of course we got technical training, right but we also got management training and I was in the audit department, which meant I spent the majority of my time at a client's office versus at the KPMG office. and that allowed me to observe what we call now culture. Within an office and management styles that worked and management styles that didn't work. So I like, you know, 40 years later that I've hung on to those management styles that that work and that we have a great company here and we have people that are excited about getting up every day and and, and working for a resource. So back to my my journey. Left Pete Marwick after a total of about 10 years. Stayed home, got the kids up and running in school, and after about two or three years of that, decided it was time to jump back into the the workforce, and I joined a team of retired public accounting partners, and they had just been awarded a contract from the Department of Justice. This was the late 90s, and right in the middle of the savings and loan meltdown, if any of you remember that. So this uh, this particular case, it was a forensic accounting case, and it had to do with uh, fraud, improper valuations of real estate that was being flipped back and forth. Spent two years doing that. It was probably the most interesting thing I've ever done as an accountant. And seriously considered uh, getting a forensic accounting certification and, and moving on with that. Didn't do that. At the end of that two years, same group received a call. What was at the t- from what was at the time a new private equity firm here in Dallas. And they said, we have grown so fast that we're just understaffed and we need some help in our financial reporting and investor reporting department. Send two people out for three weeks. Well, three weeks turned into eight years. And that's where I really learned financial reporting from a private equity fund standpoint, as well as uh, investor relations. That led into a natural progression. That's another long story. Anyway, five-year period with JP Morgan. So at this time, I'm in my late 40s, Not real sure if I want to stay at J.P. Morgan for the rest of my career.
0: And in what capacity at J.P. Morgan? Are you on the investment banking side or private wealth side? No. So
1: J.P. Morgan had actually started a new line of business specifically related to private equity fund administration. They were going to be the back office for private equity firms. So I had clients. uh, I spent a month in Australia. I had clients in Asia. I had clients in the Middle East. I spent a lot of time in our London office, a lot of time in our New York office, but I was based in Dallas. So I learned um, so much, so much during that time. And one of the things that I really take away with, from that experience is uh, an appreciation for different cultures because I had to deal with so many different people. And you know, what we take for granted here is, is not necessarily how another culture is going to look at an operating agreement and conduct business. So that was, that was a great learning experience.
0: Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break from the conversation and ask you to pull up April 10th and 11th in your calendars. If you're available and not already registered, be sure to go to mineralconference.com and get signed up for the Mineral Mark Conference being held at the Posok Hotel in Houston, Texas. If you're serious about deal making and investment in the mineral space, then I expect to see you there. I echo that the beginning part of my career, I traveled all over Australia. Hong Kong, London, Africa, Latin America. And I I very much am intrigued by culture. So I sought out the differences and would very much kind of mimic the sayings and the the, the idioms and all that. And I would come home and, you know, it's funny. I joke around. I used to joke around with my friends that I've lost my identity as a New Yorker because I came to school down in Texas, spent all this time in Canada and the UK and all different parts of the world. Married a Mexican, so okay. I have all these sayings that don't fit <laughs> New York culture at all. And I've become this cultural chameleon, yeah. where I've really lost my daddy. And people know I'm American, so they they're really at odds to figure out where I'm from. They go, "Are you from Wisconsin or something, yeah. Minnesota?" And I'm like, "Oh, if I was a proud New Yorker, that would that would really hurt." But yeah. um, no, I appreciate. Like, I know exactly what you're saying there are, are very subtle things in business culture that you pick up on. And, you know, the kind of obvious cliche ones Or you know, in Japan, when you, you bow with right. two hands on the card and you make exactly. sure seniority in the team gets introduced first down to, you know, the most junior person, like that stuff is super important. If you absolutely strip that up, it, it could be the relationship. Yeah. So yeah. it's very cool. Anyways.
1: Yeah. I loved it. Love, loved that part of it as well. So I'm winding down my time at J.P. Morgan, and I kept bumping into a friend of mine from the neighborhood. We had kids the same age, and he was kind of in the middle of changing his career path a little bit. He had been an investment advisor for, I think, 30 years at this point, and and had left the investment bank. And um, he kept saying to me, so there's another gentleman in the neighborhood. So the two of us are going to put together this mineral fund, and we think we're going to need uh, a CFO. You should come talk to us. So it took a couple of times me bumping into him. Finally, I said, "Okay, I'll I'll come visit. So I get in his office and we're about 10 minutes into the conversation where he's telling us they're going to buy mineral properties, aggregate them, put them in private placement offering and offer them to the retail investor. I, I told him, I said, I got to stop you right there. I said, I think you have a fundamental problem with your thesis. So when we first started talking to him, I said it was a native Dallasite. The other side of my family is from a little bitty town in deep East Texas, which if you're familiar with US history, there was an oil boom there in the 30s. So that side of my family lived right in the middle of that oil boom, and they started acquiring acquiring mineral properties. And growing up, my grandmother always said, be nice to people and never sell your minerals. I mean, this was ingrained in me, right? (laughs) So here I am sitting in this friend of mine's office, and he said, yeah, we're going to buy minerals. Well, you know, I was I was still living in the 30s, and this was 2011. So he assured me that, yes, people did buy and sell minerals. And in fact, at that time, it was estimated that there were 8 to 10 million different mineral owners in the United States. And so he thought his plan was going to work. So that was, oh. that was late 2011, mid-2012. And,
0: so and this is... The individual you're bumping into in the neighborhood is Bob Howard, correct? That's
1: correct. So so
0: what would, Bob's background was not in oil and gas or minerals. It, it's interesting, you you had minerals in your childhood, and then you looped back full circle. But what was Bob's background?
1: So Bob grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think he had a grandfather, maybe that was a petroleum engineer. So he had been surrounded by oil and gas his whole life. Had he worked specifically in that industry? No, but he was... Being an investment advisor, he was very familiar with offerings and had, I think, even sold a lot of different oil and gas products, maybe not mineral specific, but oil and gas related.
0: The combined mm-hmm. backgrounds of both of y'all, it makes total sense that you have the the strategy you do, right? I mean, from the report when you live inside the the SEC and the FINRA world, you, you know, you, you have to be comfortable with all the rules and the regulations that that entail. And um you and Bob had that background. We did. Right? So
1: We did. And then the other gentleman that was part of that team was Gary Redwine. So Bob and Gary initially started Resource Royalty in 2010 and Gary's background was drilling. At that point he had been in the oil business for 30 plus years. So I joined them as a CFO in 2012 and rocked along we we were raising money. Oil, you know, price of oil was was high and then all of a sudden we hit 2014 and it took a big nosedive. We survived that, learned from it, pulled our bootstraps up, thought that everything was gonna be great. And then we got to 2019, then we got to the pandemic. So we're still here, the doors are open. We've never missed a distribution. I'm, I'm very proud of the work that we've done and that we continue to do. And we think that, you know, we've got a great road ahead of us. Go backtrack just a minute. So Bob and Gary started this in 2010. And then about 2017, Gary decided he wanted to go back to focusing on drilling. And he is no longer part of Resource Royalty. So at that point, I became a partner. So Bob and I are the two the two partners of Resource right now.
0: And you were longtime CFO, recently became CEO. So congratulations. Correct. And Bob, he's chairman. Is he more of kind of a passive yes. partner at this point and, and yes. on his way to retirement?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. Not sure exactly what he, he's not sure exactly what he wants to do. Still figuring that out. But um, yes, but he definitely has taken a backseat role in day-to-day management of the company.
0: So let's, let's dive into what I allude to is, is y'all's world with, you know, being registered and going to broker dealers and raising capital from retail. Has it always been a 1031 product or have you had, has the constant thread throughout the tenure of the company been raising capital from retail investors, but then having it in different investment products. What,
1: Yes. since
0: inception, what, can you walk me through kind of the strategy and the approach?
1: Sure. So the first fund was launched in 2011 and it was a limited partnership. So we've had six of 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. We have five limited partnerships and those were those were the structure initially. Didn't even consider 1031, never talked about it. It was not on our radar at all we've liquidated the 2011 fund and are looking at our 2012 fund and one of our other funds to possibly liquidate those this year just based on the fact that the price of oil is uh, favorable and we've had new uh drilling activity in there which as you know raises the value of the portfolio so then 2015 2014 came along and all of a sudden it appeared on our radar that mineral properties can qualify as exchange property in a 1031 transaction. And I'm referring to the Internal Revenue Code section 1031, which specifically deals with like-kind exchanges. And in this case, if somebody is coming out of deeded real estate, and it can be bricks and mortar, or it can be mineral properties, they can do a like-kind exchange into mineral properties because you're it's deeded real estate into or out of deeded real estate, and that just means that that 1031 aspect will allow them to defer any capital gain and push that on down the road for them.
0: Go ahead. And then how does that work? It, there's there's a clock, right? So
1: there's a very specific time timeline on a 1031 transaction. So once individual's relinquished property is sold. And they decide they want to do a 1031, then the clock starts ticking. So first of all, they can't take possession of any cash from that transaction. It has to go to a third party, like an escrow account. They call it a qualified intermediary. And the investor, for lack of a better word right now, then has 45 days to identify what the exchange property is that they're going to put into into that 1031 exchange. So we will have an investment rep typically from one of the broker-dealers, it's our client, contact us and say, I've got John Smith, he's sold his relinquished property, I've presented him with several different options and he is interested in your resource royalty product, and let's get the ball rolling. So at that point, then we will get the necessary paperwork from that investment rep, we will provide the qualified intermediary with the identification language that's required by the IRS. We get up to that 45 days, the clock stops on that part of the transaction. Then the investor has another 180 days from the sale of the relinquished property to close the transaction. We've never had anybody go 180 days. Typically, I would say 45 days is the longest that we've ever seen from when their relinquished property is closed. So, and
0: so From my understanding, I'm no 1031 expert, but there's different types of 1031 offerings. Are you doing it at the asset level, are you warehousing portfolios and then going out to market with, call it ten million dollars worth the minerals, or fifteen million or five million dollars worth the minerals? Can mm-hmm. can you, pardon my ignorance here, can you, can you break down a little more detail how how y'all navigate the?
1: So we do market? the we do the latter because of that forty five day ID period. When we when we go to market with an offering, we have to have the portfolio already identified in there, so that when we contact the QI. Then we can say John Smith investor has decided to invest one hundred thousand dollars with us, which represents X percentage of this portfolio. And here is the legal description of the portfolio. So we have to have that identified and in place on our end before we even put, you know, complete the offering and before before a broker dealer would look at it.
0: And you're getting these leads for the individual investors from a pretty robust network of broker-dealers all throughout the U.S. Can you, putting a pause there, were you always leveraging broker-dealers for raising the LP partnerships early on? Was that accredited investors and Reg D offerings? And then Mm -hmm. it morphed into the 1031 world and really needing to leverage BDs more and more? Talk to me about that journey.
1: Sure. Yes to all of the above. So we've always dealt in the broker-dealer world with Reg D offerings, and it's always been an accredited investor. The the nuance that I would say that changed between the LP offering and the 1031 is that there are investment reps and broker-dealers that are more 1031-centric than just a typical retail investor. So, so an, somebody that's coming out of relinquished property, I think it's a lot of referrals by word of mouth and you know now we've got google and so i think people do actually find reps when they start googling 1031 transactions and you know what i'm going to do with my money now because that's a challenge for a lot of people they've they've sold a 10 million dollar strip mall and now they've got to figure out what to do with that money
0: hey guys i wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to opportune llp for sponsoring our minerals and royalties podcast As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well-positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frack crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts any time you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at c.morris@nobleroyalties.com. at or Shannon Manor at at Royalties.com. Now, what about, this is going into the profile of the portfolios, minerals portfolios you're taking to market. Is it typically very yield heavy and, and more of a mature PDP cash flowing portfolio? Is there a lot of development risk in there? Is it some sort of even balance? I, I'm just trying to figure out in the, 1031 investment world, is there kind of bands or norms of return expectations and risk profile, or is it really different per product?
1: Yep, I understand what you're asking me. So, when we first started this, I mentioned early on that we we dealt with a limited partnership structure, and this was 2011 up through 2015. Well, if you remember what the price of oil did then, I think we got up to 120. And then in November of 2014, it took a Serious nosedive. So you've heard me say before: if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. So what do we do now? At that point, our portfolios had been pud heavy, and one of the one of the metrics that you know we follow is is the rig count. And so in 2014, I mean we only had 170 something rigs in Oklahoma. I don't know what it was nationwide, but it was you know significant number. So. Fast forward and we start seeing that hey, maybe that strategy is not is not as successful as it had been because we had decline in oil price. So we changed our focus a little bit and became very PDP heavy and still supplementing that portfolio with with PUDs, but our focus of area in different basins became very narrowed. We of course everything's dependent upon economics and how it's going to look for returns for investor, and then and then also we like I said we became very very focused. And for us, for the last couple of years, the Anadarko Basin has made a lot of sense because the, the economics are are good. You know, an investor is looking for typically for us an eight to ten percent cash on cash annually, compared to say a five to seven percent that they're getting from a, a real estate DST from bricks and mortar. So we're able to do that by putting together that structure in, in properties right now from the Anadarko. Now, if somebody presents us with a portfolio from, you know, North Dakota, West Virginia, Marcellus, that type of thing, we'll look at it. But by the time we have to put on what I call the load, you know, everybody wants to get their get their pay uh, fair share paid. Right. The the investment rep and their firm, et cetera. So by the time we put that load on there, it eats into the return. So we. Uh,
0: Right now, i just focused on darko. Got it. And how, how are y'all structured internally? Are, do you have an internal team calling on landowners directly? Are you relying on a broker network? Or are you going and looking here? You said you, through 2022, you've raised $164 million across 18 different Reg D offerings. So give or take, you know, <laughs> $9 million bucks a partnership on on average.
1: Correct.
0: Are you filling up that $9 million bucks with, a couple of larger transactions and acquiring portfolios, or was it a mix of everything? How have you built these minerals portfolios?
1: Sure. So when we initially started, we had one provider, and that was Gary Redwine's company, and and he had he had actually had a team of guys, landmen, calling mineral owners. And as time progressed, and he became less involved in resource, we have now have established a relationship with. Three other mineral providers. So in total, we've got four. So we've continued to buy from Shepherd, but we also have three other providers, and those are aggregators. So we don't have people in the office calling anymore. We'll give them a heads up. Say we're about to close out an offering. We're going to start putting together the next one. Show us what you got. They know what our parameters are. So it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty smooth process um, at this time.
0: And for those listening, are you open to others bringing you deal flow? Or you, Absolutely. Uh, Okay.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Always interested.
0: So Bob's from Tulsa. You've been primarily focused in the Anadarko throughout the years. You mentioned that you know, Anadarko has been a roller coaster up and down. Uh, it was super frothy in 2015, 16, 17. There was the technical reset on the drilling side that really caused the Nexus a capital. I would call it 2018, 19. A lot of folks went to the Permian. The, the two-pronged strategy, I think, for a lot of larger funds has become Permian-Hainesville. For a stretch there, it was Anadarko-Permian. So then you go into COVID and activity in the Anadarko, I think, below 10 rigs in 2020. So commodity prices were low, act, drilling activity was low. Anadarko has since rebounded, for sure, in terms of rig activity, in terms of favor in the market. I think the operators like Oventive and, and Devon and others Devin. have really figured it out and they yeah. know... Their are drilling economics and spacing and all that. So I, I think the Anadarko is is a good investment opportunity today, but it wasn't a linear path, right? So no. you guys, it sounds like you guys have been along for the journey the whole time. What, what are kind of the takeaways and lessons learned and, you know, the way you describe the Anadarko when you're going out to market and things you like about it?
1: So we are very focused on a narrow runway there. A couple of years ago, you would have looked at our portfolio and we would have had a significant number of acres in the Northwest stack. So like I said, we follow rig placement. I think there's a satellite program now that our petroleum engineer can can log into and track where rigs are and maybe see some movement as well. So not seeing a lot of activity up there. So we backed off of that. Um, the point being, we're not, not too fringy, for lack of a better word. With regard to that rig count, like I said, in 2018, I've got some stats here. There were 141 rigs working in 2020. I think there were about 15. And in 2022, we're back up to um 68, it looks like. So we're still less than half of what it was in, in 2018.
0: 140. I didn't realize because I never really had my eye on that kind of data back then. But wow, I didn't realize they, they were high.
1: all over. Yeah, they yeah. were all over. So, you know, we we know to watch that. We know to watch. Be cognizant of the operators that we deal with i mean you mentioned inventive we we use devon we use the the bigger publicly traded operators because you know every it's all going to be subject to capital expenditure and cash flow right for them to to drill these wells so we are very focused and, and very intentional when we put together a portfolio that we make sure that the operators in that portfolio guys that have been in this area before know the area just like you said and have experience there. So those are the two things that we really that we really focus on.
0: Yeah, from an opportunities set standpoint, when I talk to minerals players that are focused in Anadarko, the basic sentiment has really been what's what's left is very, very fragmented. I think you had a lot of institutional consolidation yes. back when it was frothy. And now you have a lot of those portfolios that were bought in correctly. And as a result, there's a bit ass spread. And yeah. any type of marketing process. that one deal of size that recently transacted was Fortis with Land Run Minerals, backed by Kane Anderson. That was—I don't know the exact number. I, I'm pretty sure it's above 200 million. And that was a stack play that was heavily developed. There's five rigs on the whole property. I got to go back my notes, but thousands of wells, right? So it's very much a developed play. So that was the first one of size that really transacted. Brigham peeled off some stuff to Eckerd as well, I think for 67 million last year. But other than that, it's been a lot of small ground game aggregation, a lot of family offices. And so when I talk to OKC based and and Oklahoma focused minerals aggregators that are doing, you know, one, two, three, four million two, three, $4 million in deployment a year, they love it, you know, down market yeah. aggregating 5, 10, 15 NRAs at a time. Mm-hmm. There's some really good value opportunities. Yeah, but for private equity and a large fund who wants to deploy fifty million in a year, right. they just can't deploy that capital, and so you you kind of see this void of institutional capital playing in Anadarko for now. And as some of these portfolios get to the point where they're mature enough, like a Fortis that was just kind of humming along there for a while, they try to be part of a public process, then they tried to go to market a few times with banks over the last two three years, and it wasn't the right timing. And finally, it got over the line. Maybe Anadarko heats up and gets a little more frothy with the larger funds in the years to come. But now that's not the case. And so, is that one of the reasons y'all like absolutely. it? Is it is a little more quiet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I appreciate being on the the podcast with you, but also, you know, I I, <laughs> I don't want to advertise this too much because it's worked out so well for us. I'll give you an example. Our offering number, revenue and number 15, which closed the end of 2021, the um, price deck price on deck. the engineering for that was mid-50s, okay? So we saw, what, an average price in 2022 of close to $90? That thing is doing a solid double-digit. I'm not even going to tell you what the number is because nobody will believe me, but all the investors in that offering are very, very happy. So yeah, the opportunity is is there and we hope it'll be there for a couple of years.
0: Fantastic. So you're talking about happy investors and double digit returns. In, in general, you said they're looking for 8 to 9% cash 80. yields. Uh-huh. So let, let's play the analogy game, you know, real estate and fixed income, you know, alternatives to minerals. When y'all are going out with these portfolios, I don't know if these investors have ever invested in minerals before. I know there's a lot of similarities between real estate, so it's not like they're learning a completely new vocabulary. But you know, what, when y'all are going out there, what are the investment properties of some of these other asset classes that these investors are normally in or are familiar with? And how does that translate to minerals? I have a couple more questions, but I'll, I'll let you kind okay. of start with there.
1: So typically we com- uh, compete against a, a DST that's multifamily focused, student housing. And, and what's focused,
0: a DST for non-real estate people?
1: Statutory people. trust. It's just another vehicle for the, for a group to put their offering into. Like we, we go to market with an LLC structure. This is a DST. And it's similar to tenants in common. It's it's more, I think it's more of a fund where there are where it has to be a, a group decision when they exit. There's a usually a time, a defined time holding period versus what we do in the 1031. Because of the 1031 aspect to, to what we do, we as the general sponsor, the general partner in the offering, we have no control over when an investor exits their their holdings. They can we have a lot of people actually that yes they're coming out of a 1031, but they're they will put it into their portfolio as part of their estate planning and just plan to hold the, the minerals in perpetuity. So uh there's a little bit of difference there. And so that's you know, really tell,
0: interesting because most LP partnerships are going to have anywhere from five to 10 year lockups. And so right. when you go to market with this, there is no lockup period you're no, saying.
1: No. I, that, that.
0: That's a tremendous advantage for someone who wants exposure to the asset class is going to get the tax benefits of a 1031 product. But then in three years, if they want to, you know, liquidate and put that money into something else, they have the freedom to do so.
1: They have the option to do that. And, you know, we because of the 1031, we cannot have any uh, perceived operational control. So we do offer to manage their property for them because, as you stated, a while ago, They probably have not had ex- mineral experience. So, of all of the investors, and I think I've got close to seven hundred now and growing. I've had one, one individual that told me, "No, I'm going to manage my own." And after about sixty days, he came back and cried, "Uncle," and said, "Here, take it over." It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of, a lot of terminology that, if you haven't dealt with it before, you're going to have to do some homework and get up to speed and the well operators are sending you paperwork asking you to sign it and saying yes this is how much i own and this is what i expect to be paid on and if you get that wrong it's like turning a big ship to get it corrected so they they're overwhelmed with the process and we do offer that for it's a nominal fee to do that so somebody owns their their minerals and they come to us and say i'd like to see what the market's like you know can you help me sell it of course we can help them sell it we can refer them to one of the online online brokerage groups, or we can uh, contact people that we know in the market and see if they're interested in that. Have not had a lot of people do that today. Everybody's been happy for the most part with their uh, with their holdings. So I think they see potential given the political aspects of the fossil fuel industry right now. I think everybody's figured out that, hey, this is going to be around a little bit longer. So, so there's some value here.
0: Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and rig locations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions if you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo need energy industry management experience at your fingertips Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast, E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. What about on the inflation hedge? You know, selling point is that something that you hear resonate with these folks a bit in a seven to ten percent inflationary environment. It's very relevant, no?
1: Sure, no. We've really not explored that aspect of it, but now that you bring it up, I'm make a note over here. Probably should add that to our uh, to our marketing a little bit. And and even though you know, it's funny.
0: I, I was in Dallas a couple weeks ago. I had a Meeting with a re- relatively large-sized family office. They had some legacy minerals assets that were in the family, and they ended up building this family office to diversify into other asset classes, everything fueled by the minerals cash flow. So we're, you know, kind of doing the pleasantries back and forth, chatting about the space. They're asking me questions about trends and investor sentiment and all that. And I said, Hey, I have a question. You know, one of my main mission statements is to educate investors on. The minerals asset class and the benefits of it, and just really broaden the the reach of the space. And one of the things we always profess as a big benefit is the hedge on inflation. Let me ask you this: you know, majority of your cash flow is coming from minerals. What did the last year to year and a half look like from a portfolio management perspective? Did that inflation hedge really matter? And he leaned in and he said, "It was the best uh, financial performance we've ever had, sure. and hedge on inflation was massive for us." Sure. So it you know and when you look at it uh, you know if you have you know an S&P balanced portfolio S&P 500 and it's kicking out 6 to 7% return on average which is kind of market and your inflation is 9% you have negative real returns right, right? right. so right. to to hedge that is is mm-hmm. tremendous but that that was good to hear just get a sanity check on my part, anyway. So going back, you, you said you compete mostly real estate. So dig in a little bit more. I, I hear I'm not a real estate guy. Explain where the real estate market is generally today versus minerals and, and, and all.
1: So first of all, when when we start talking to an investor, we will, and typically our investor profile is somebody who's been in the real estate investment business for years. So we will explain to them that minerals, in our case, are another real estate play. It just so happens that the properties in our portfolio are flush with oil and and natural gas reserves. So then we go and explain that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's three estates in in the United States. And I think that's pretty unique for any country around the world. You've got the air estate, you've got the surface estate, which is, you know, what our homes sit on, commercial buildings, et cetera. And then the subsurface estate, which is what, what we aggregate our portfolio in. So once people realize, okay, this really is a real estate play, then they can wrap their heads around that a little bit better. What we're seeing in the bricks and mortar real estate market is, as you would expect, it's slowed down significantly, primarily due to the increase in interest rates. So that's worked out well for us, but we, we're going, we've been going nose to nose with, you know, cap rates in the six percent, I would say, for the bricks and mortar. And probably looking more in the 4% range right now. And we're able to put together a portfolio with 8 to 10% cash on cash, or maybe better.
0: And cap rates, is it just another, is real estate speak for interest interest, interest rates?
1: Well, for actually for the return.
0: For the return. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. Well, And then diving into the 1031 exchange world, which is almost majority uh, real estate, there's a very small percentage that's oil and gas, 1031 exchange. Um, can you... Talk about that, just the the opportunity set and the size of the market and just sure. how scalable this is.
1: I just happen to have another uh, set of statistics here. Okay. So are you familiar with Dell? I'm not. Um, OK, Mountaindale Consulting. They are a research and consulting firm, and they put out a monthly report specifically related to 1031 DST uh, transactions. So I pulled up the December one, and the equity raised in the, the real estate 1031 space last year was $9.2 billion. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so you've got you know you've got everything from like I said, industrial, hospitality, multifamily, student housing, energy. They put energy space in there because again it's a it's a real estate play. So there's there is a lot of money in this space. There's a lot of money to be made in this space, and we are one of right now. I think there's only one other group in the market like us, our competitor, and it's a pretty small group. You know that we've noticed over the last what, 12, 13 years now that we've been in business that actually do minerals in this space. Drilling programs do not qualify for 1031 and working interests do not qualify with regard to minerals. So it has to be a royalty or an override.
0: Yeah. And listen, I mean, it, it is super interesting. There's a large market for it. You said y'all are one of two that that are active in the space. Why is that? You know, there's a barrier, right? Being a registered investment advisor and all the compliance and all that that comes with it is a lot of work. It's a a big responsibility. And there's a lot of things that folks would just prefer not to deal with. Same thing with being public, right? Right. Running a public company is not for
1: everyone
0: for different reasons, but kind of the same general theme of I don't want to deal with reporting and uh, roadshows and all that. So
1: yeah, it's getting more complicated by the day.
0: Yeah, for sure. But no, that, that's $9.2 billion. It's incredible. What? That's a big how number. has that looked over the years? Is there any kind of correlation between, you know, when the real estate market goes down a bit, you know, there's it's a better time for y'all, people are getting out of it, or maybe when real estate's booming, and, or interest rates go up or down, or See, markets go up it, and down. Is there any type of- I think of, it's very
1: uh, interest rate driven, and, and also value, right? So, so what we noticed is that when interest rates started creeping up this last year, October slowed down significantly for us just because the property being sold on the relinquished side slowed down. Deals were were supposed to close and all of a sudden they fell through or the closing date got pushed out. My personal opinion that people have now become a little bit accustomed to the increased interest rates. They figured out how to make the economics work on their side of, that, of the relinquished property sale. And so November and December were very good months for us. We raised a little over $32 million last year. And that's, that's good for us in that space.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm deducting from what you just said, the interest rate environment and the appetite to be able to, or the ability to sell real estate. It's very much just like commodity prices. There's, there could be steady deal flow at low commodity prices, mid and high commodity prices, but when there's sudden volatility, that's when everything locks up. So yeah. Just because there's high interest rates doesn't necessarily mean that this market dries up, correct?
1: I think that's fair. Yeah, I think people just had to had to shift their modeling and their economics, and like I said, take a deep breath and say, okay, this is going to be here to stay. How do we make it work?
0: Yeah, one of my buddies from college, I played golf with him this past weekend just to catch up, and he's a real estate agent. We're just you know doing the the general pleasantries. Oh, how's work? Blah blah blah. And he was like, not a lot was selling yeah. in, in September, October, right? Yeah, he said it yeah, was, it really, really came difficult.
1: to a screeching halt.
0: Yeah, because he said interest rates just hiked up. I forget the exact number, but he was like 3% up to almost 7 or 8% within yeah. a month. And that just yeah. was too severe. But things are back, just like you echoed. And yeah. there he's doing well again. But all righty, this has been this has been a lot of fun, Beth. Thanks I've for coming it. on. Let's wrap it up. I know we touched on this before, but you guys are focused on Anadarko. You have some ground game partners. You like a little bit more developed minerals talk to me for those listening out there that have antidarco Minerals and are looking for a home for them general check size that you guys like to write is there a general percentage you know call it 60% PDP and the rest is pods with the split of the pods being ducks and permits i mean is there some general criteria for those listening out there
1: sure sure um, i would say yeah. when we're when we're looking to, to aggregate a portfolio we're going to be in the 8 to 10 million dollar range per portfolio and then we, we want to be PDP and duck heavy in the first couple of years, because if we're promoting this offering as you know cash on cash with an 8 to 10% return, we're going to have to have PDP up front to, to meet that return. Then as the decline curve on those wells flatten out, we're going to have to introduce some PUDs later on. So I would say, I've never really looked at it from a percentage standpoint, but maybe 60%. 55 to 60% PDP ducks filings on the front end with the balance on puts but again it's going to be in the core of the court.
0: Yeah, so by 8 to 10 million in, in per portfolio you're really talking about the 1031 offerings you're bringing to market. How many deals are you typically doing within those portfolios? I what I'm trying to break down is will you guys look at $100,000 deals, million dollar deals? Is there a certain floor and ceiling for folks who are bringing you deal flow that you typically We've, transacted on?
1: Yeah, we the groups that we have dealt with to date have typically brought us the lowest I've seen, I think it's about two and a half million to one time we we purchased the whole portfolio from one aggregator. So it just depends on the quality of the properties and and the breakdown between the PDP and the and the PUDs. Yep. So
0: yep. they're, they're very much, it, it sounds like these are long standing relationships. They very much understand what you want and they're building it for you. And then,
1: absolutely. And, and we have one group in particular, they will go out and purchase a portfolio for themselves with the idea that we'll take X percent of that. So, you know, they're, they're, which makes me feel good because they're buying quality because they want to keep, you know, There's skins the in the game. for themselves. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Thanks again for coming on. Uh, It's been great getting to know you some more over this past year. And I look forward to furthering that relationship. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing you again in person soon. And good luck on on the upcoming fundraising and, and aggregation of deals. And hope you have a fantastic 2023.
1: Thank you. Same to you, Tim. I appreciate the time.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.